As a pastor, one of the things that can weigh heavy on my heart is when a member of our family leaves the family. And there can be many reasons. And one thing I just want to acknowledge is that I believe that sometimes a church, a local church, can serve you so well for a season, but then it might be time to move on to something else. And I totally get it. But what really breaks my heart is when someone walks away from the church. And you see this more and more happening, especially in this time, where people are walking away from God and really not looking back. And I believe one of the reasons this happens is because all of us, to some degree, have questions or doubts. And some people are walking away from church because they did not feel safe asking the questions that were on their mind. Maybe you experienced this for the first time in middle school, not at a church level, but on a relationship level, where you kind of wanted to know how he or she felt about you, and so you wrote something on a piece of paper, and then you handed that piece of paper to a friend, and then that friend delivered it to your hopefully future significant someone, and you don't even know what that means in middle school yet, but you separate yourself from the question so that you're not as heartbroken over the potential answer. Some of us have questions and doubts that we don't feel safe asking, and so what I hope this series does is it gives you permission to have that kind of a posture, to ask the questions that are on your mind, and to address the doubts that you might be wrestling with. Maybe in this series, we'll actually hit one of those questions that you've been wrestling with. Or if nothing else, I hope that this gives you a posture of asking when that time comes. And just to make it normalized, I want to make sure we normalize this. I think it's important, you know, as I preach this, we're one week removed from Easter. Easter really was all about doubters. On Easter morning, you did not see the disciples or anyone ready to celebrate what was about to happen, even though they should have seen it coming. But rather, even when they hear the news, the tomb is empty, they're asking questions like, what do you mean it's empty? What happened? They were filled with questions and filled with doubt. And so what I want you to know this morning is that doubters are not alone. You're in good company, even with those people in the first century who saw Jesus and followed him. In fact, let's look at one common example. When it comes to Easter and, you know, many of the disciples seeing Jesus, there was one disciple who wasn't there in that locked room when Jesus showed himself to them. And his name was... Thomas. We call him Doubting Thomas. Honestly, he was brave Thomas. He was the only one brave enough to leave that locked room. But when he was gone, Jesus showed up to the others. And when Thomas came back and heard Jesus had come, he said, I don't believe it. No way that could happen. The only way I'll believe it is if I see him for myself. I want to see his hands. I want to see that hole in his side where the spear went through. I will not believe unless I see. So how did Jesus address him the following week? Jesus could have made an example of him. How dare you doubt me? We're going to make an example of you, Thomas? No, Jesus did not despise doubters. This is incredible. Jesus actually dignified doubters by providing proofs for them. Thomas, come here, come here. This is my version, by the way. This isn't in the Bible. Thomas, come here, come here, come here. I hear that you've got some questions. I hear that you've got some doubts. Check this out. Feel this. It's me. You can believe. You can trust. And by providing proof, Jesus actually dignified him, even in his doubt. 
In this series, that's what we want to do for you. To make it normal to have that Thomas in us who wants more answers, who needs to search things out and figure things out. Because the fear is, if, if you don't address these doubts or these questions, they're only going to get worse. Just like with any relationship, if you have any question or doubt about someone's, someone's trust, if you don't address it, it will only grow worse and worse. I put it this way when it comes to faith. When you hold back questions about faith, it may lead to a questionable faith. It may lead to a faith that is weaker, that is not as certain, and only takes a little bit to push you out the door. And what I want to acknowledge too as we get into this series is that some of you might already be there where you've had this doubt, this, this wonderment, and how, did, how can the Bible say this? Or how can I believe in a God that did this? And you, you're kind of having one hand on the handle of the door to the church and you're about ready to walk away from God and, and you're not sure where you should go. And maybe even the people in your family don't know it. What I know is that holding back your questions about faith often lead to a questionable faith. So let's ask some questions. Um, today, as we launched this series, we thought a good place to start would be you know, kind of this small little topic, this small detail. Um, how can we trust the Bible? Which, it's actually a big thing. How can we trust the Bible? And there's so many different variations of this question, but I didn't want to bombard you with all the different aspects. A lot of the things that I've seen go something like this. A lot of times they'll pull up one Bible verse, maybe from the Old Testament, and say, you really want to believe in a God who would do something like this? Can you defend this? Or some other doubts that might come up are just about where the Bible came from in general. Someone might say, you know where the Bible came from, right? There was a group of people with a certain agenda and a certain worldview and a certain disdain for people with certain sexual identities, and they came together in this room and just picked and chose what books should be in the Bible, and that's how we got it. It's, it's an agenda-filled book that is trying to push people towards a worldview. And there can be all different ways that this attack can come out, but the basic question is, are, are, how can we trust the Bible? So as we go forward, there's going to be two main things we talk about. Um, the first part is more of a historical approach to what the Bible is and where it came from. My disclaimer is that I'm not that good with history, especially when lots of numbers are involved. There's some great videos out there that can give you more details and more thorough background, but I'm sharing with you what an amateur historian has learned this week with regard to where the Bible came from, and I'll, I'll share with you what I believe are the high points. So that's the first part. We'll look at the history of the Bible. The second part, we're going to put it into practice by looking at how Jesus viewed the Bible in his day. And I'm going to show you why it's a compelling thing for us to consider. The, the way that Jesus viewed the Bible has a big impact on how I view the Bible today. And I believe it has a big impact on how you should view it too. So before we talk about where the Bible came from, I think it's important to define what we're talking about. What is the Bible? And the best answer is it's not a book. It's actually a collection of 66 different books and letters broken down into two sections. 
the Old Testament basically comprises everything before Jesus. It talks about the creation of this world and all the different promises and prophecies of a Savior that was to come. And then the New Testament is everything written after Jesus. These 27 books and letters are a witness or a testimony to who Jesus was and what he did and what that means for our lives today. Now, the Old Testament is pretty simple to sort through. Like, what is the Old Testament? Well, it's 39 books, and those 39 books were established by Jesus' day. And here's what he said about the Old Testament. Jesus was talking to some religious scholars, people who had memorized the Bible, and he said, you study the scriptures, speaking about the Old Testament, you study them diligently because you think that in them, if you just study enough, if you learn enough, then you will have eternal life. You you think if you follow the rules, then that is how you get your way to God. And Jesus said, no, these are the very scriptures that testify about me yet you refuse to come to me for life. These scriptures that talk about all the sacrifices that had to be made, they're referring to a better sacrifice that I will make. All these scriptures that give a historical account of all the kings of Israel are all pointing to a greater king. All the prophets and the words that they spoke, the words of of rebuke and encouragement, just a foreshadow of the word of God in flesh. You study the Bible trying to find it, some rules to, to make you good with God, but no, they all point to me as the one who can give you life. And so in Jesus' day, it's very simple to look and say those 39 books of the Old Testament, Jesus pointed to as testimony about him. And so here, here's just a quick side note. The purpose of the Bible is not to... Con- the, let me rephrase that. The main purpose of the Bible is not to convince somebody that the world was created in six days. The main purpose of the Bible is not to to tell someone how they should live or how they should act or who they should love or what they should desire. The main purpose of the Bible draws us to Jesus because as Jesus himself said, these are the scriptures that testify about me. So there's a lot of application to that. And by the way, on the other side, when we see that this word is the truth of God, it has a lot of impact on what you should believe and how you should view yourself. But the main priority is first and foremost to lead you to Jesus and his resurrection. And then we get to the New Testament, which is different. Jesus wasn't around when the New Testament was written. Like not a single letter or a single book of the New Testament would be written until almost two decades after Jesus was gone. And yet when you look at what Jesus told his first century disciples as he sent them out into the world, he gave them a very special promise. He said, when you stand in front of synagogues and in front of rulers, when you have to give an account of your faith, do not worry about what you will say because it will be the Holy Spirit speaking for you. There was a special promise attached to those apostles that Jesus sent out. And so as they spoke and as they wrote, it was not their words. It was the wisdom. It was the hope of God. And what we know about the New Testament is is this. Here's how it was put together. Here's how it was formed. Uh, In 48 to about 96 AD, you know, kind of rough numbers, but pretty close to that. That's when the New Testament was actually written. 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all the way through Revelation, the span was, was the, um, that time frame. And this really was the golden age because this was when that generation of people who knew Jesus was still around. They could read Matthew, they could read Mark, Luke, and John, and they could say, yes, I was there, that's what happened. And there was this obvious harmony, this testimony of the people to what happened and also a testimony for who wrote these books and letters. But what we also know is that times weren't easy. From 48 through 312, the Christian religion, the Christian movement, was basically forbidden by the Roman Empire. And here's what that meant. We see already in biblical times, you read through the book of Acts, there was great persecution that went out against Christians. Those who professed their faith in Jesus were viewed as enemies of the Roman Empire. Rome wanted a unified approach to who their gods were and what that meant. And to have these counter-religionists out there trying to spark a new movement was not only bad for the empire, it was bad for their gods. And so Christians were persecuted. They were thrown into coliseums. They were thrown into prison. Many of them killed And if they did that to people, what do you think they did to their books, to their writings? So in this time span, you see, whenever Christian writings were found, they were burned, they were gotten rid of. If you had a book about Jesus or a letter that talked about Jesus, that was confiscated and gotten rid of. So what you see is several centuries of Christians copying down whatever they could find, a letter from Paul, a story about Jesus, a book that detailed his life. They would, they would find these things secretly. They would copy them and pass them around. And so what you see is in different areas, you've got different copies being made and distributed and sent around. And what you might expect to happen happened. Some of those copies got little mistakes. Some of those copies were lost. Some sections were cut off, but still you had a wide geographic region of different areas where these copies of New Testament books and letters were being written. Just remember this. All during this time, there was no Bible as we have it today. The incredible thing is that even though Christianity was outlawed by the Roman government, still it didn't just survive, but by the end of it, it thrived because the story of Christianity was not a religious book. It was about an event that Jesus really did die and come back to life. So things finally changed in 313, thanks to Constantine. I'm not going to pretend to tell you the history of who this guy was, but he basically made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. And when that happened, Christians breathed a deep sigh of relief. And just picture this. No longer did they have to hide. No longer did they have to hide away their religious texts, their books, their letters about who Jesus was. Suddenly, you've got all these letters, all these um, pastors, all these bishops kind of coming out of the woodworks, and finally, people are able to share publicly what they've gathered over these 200-plus years. And then what Constantine wanted to do was really unite his empire, and so he commissioned in 331 that there should be the Bible made, that religious scholars, that Christians should come together, determine, like, what are these texts that should belong in the Bible? And so they had a lot of people come together, and Constantine ordered that 50 copies of the Bible should be 
written should be made and sent all over so that all the Christians in his empire could work, basically play by the same rule book. And then it was a little bit later, as, as this is happening, by the end of that century, by 400, finally you have this compilation of what we now know as the Bible. 27 books in the New Testament that are now added to those 39 books in the Old Testament. Now, the reason that I think this is important is because, unfortunately, of some of the doubts and questions that have gone unresolved. You see, a different way to tell this story is that, oh, a bunch of, a bunch of white Christians who hated um, certain, you know, whatever, they got together and they just picked and chose what letters and what books of the Bible they decided to, to want and they put those together so that they could basically tell people what to believe and what God wants. But that's not the story that we get from history. We see people who spent decades of their lives poring over all these different manuscripts, these copies that had made for centuries. And now they are applying the strictest of measures to make sure that what they let into the Bible, what they recognized as God's word, really was. And so they put in place certain parameters, like if, if this really is going to be in our collection of, of books and letters, we have to know who wrote it. It has to be focused on Jesus, because as Jesus said, all scripture is about him. And they also made sure that they knew where it came from, when it came from. And they applied all these things. And finally, they said, you know, there are some 80 different things we could include in the New Testament but we've pared it down to these 27 that we're sure about. These 27 are the voice of God in our time because they tell the story of Jesus and they point people to him. And that's really the, the big story behind all this. The Bible can be complicated, not just because of what it says, but because of where it came from and how it was formed over the years. But really the main point that we see in this is that the purpose of the Bible is just to lead people to Jesus. And this is something Jesus had to teach about the Old Testament, how every sacrifice, every ritual, everything pointed to him. The same is true of the New Testament. It shows us how Jesus fulfilled all these prophecies in such a cool, unique way. Maybe this helps you. As you study the Bible on your own and as you read it, you'll probably run into questions and the sections where you've got some questions or some doubts. You might wonder, how could God allow this? Or why would God do this? And the answer is, this, in one way or another, should lead you to Jesus. The one who was perfect in our place. Or the one who suffered under sin in our place. Everything leads to him. And one of the best ways, or one of the best sections in the Bible where I see this come to play is actually after Jesus rose from the dead. It was Easter Sunday where all this craziness ensues. The first Mary and some other Marys, there was a gaggle of Marys. They, they, they all went to the tomb and they find it open and empty. So Peter and John, they run out, and John lets us know he was faster than Peter. Uh, John got there first. It was empty. Peter went in. Everything was empty. And word starts to get out, like something, something is happening. We don't know if it's good or bad or what's going on. 
And then in Luke chapter 24, Luke goes on to tell us the story of, of two other disciples who had started to hear about these things. And now it seems they're kind of giving up. They hear that the tomb is empty and maybe they're thinking, oh, this isn't good because when Rome finds out that Jesus' tomb is empty, they're going to come looking for us. It's only a matter of time until they weed out every last follower of Jesus in Jerusalem. So maybe we should just leave. Let the dust settle and then we'll see what's going on. So here's how Luke records it. And this helps us see how Jesus viewed the Bible even after his resurrection. So on Easter Sunday, that same day, two of them, two disciples of Jesus, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had just happened from Palm Sunday to how Jesus turned over tables in the temple to how Jesus taught people, how he was betrayed, arrested, crucified, and now the tomb is empty. There was a lot to talk about on this seven-mile walk. And so this is funny. As, as they were talking, it goes on. Next verse. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, <laughs> Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. Have you ever had that awkward moment where you're talking about someone and then you realize that they're walking right next to you? But here's something interesting. They did not recognize him. And there's different ideas out there about why they didn't recognize him. I'm just... That's a good question. Just hold on to that because I think Jesus is going to answer it by the end of this section. So they didn't recognize him. But then Jesus asked them, hey, what are you guys talking about? I, you know, I don't mean to eavesdrop. don't mean to be awkward, but I can't, you seem like you're really, you know, talking about something. What, what, what's going on? What's, what's, what are you talking about as you walk along? And this question by the way, sometimes when we're wrestling with our questions, isn't it cool how God can just make you stop with a question of his own? <laughs> like we ask God, who are, what are you doing? And, and then you're kind of struck with his response, who are you to ask? Ooh. Sometimes when God asks a question, it makes us stop, and the same is true of them. They stood still. Their face is downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, and I believe Luke adds his name because Cleopas was one of the people Luke talked to as he wrote out this orderly account. Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Basically saying, you're an idiot. Where have you been? Everyone in Jerusalem has heard the uproar of what happened this last week. I mean, a week ago, this Jesus of Nazareth was paraded into Jerusalem as a king, and just a couple of days ago, they crucified him in the public square. Are you the only one who's been in Jerusalem who hasn't heard these things? Ironic that he, Jesus was the only one who actually experienced all these things. And I love this next part. What things? <laughs> playing dumb, playing like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Tell me, fill me in, fill me in, fill me in. And so they, they go on. Okay, okay. So it's about Jesus of Nazareth and they're starting to fill him in all his stuff. He was, uh, he was a prophet. He was powerful in word and in deed before God and all the people. He was something. I'm, 
We're, we're sorry that you didn't get to see him. We're sorry that you didn't get to know him. But as awesome as he was, something crazy happened. Our chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. We didn't understand what was going on, but we betrayed him. They crucified him. Now, we, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. And before we go on, I just want to pause here because I think Jesus has to bite his tongue in this moment because everything they're saying was predicted in the scriptures, that he would be betrayed by his own people, that he would be pierced for our transgressions, and that his ultimate goal was to restore not just a nation, but all of the world. But they go on. In addition, some of our women amazed us. Just a quick side note. I got to keep moving. I'm going a little slow today. Um, you can be amazed by, by what God does, but also miss what God is doing. You can be amazed by what God does, but also be really missing what God is ultimately doing. Some of our women amazed us. They, they went to the tomb early this morning, but they did not find his body. Huh. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Hmm. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. And isn't this ironic? James, Peter, John, Mary, Mary, and Mary... They did not see Jesus. What's true of Cleopas? And the other one, that they did not see Jesus, even though he was standing right in front of them. Because sometimes when you're expecting God to do something different than what he actually does, you can be looking for someone who doesn't exist. They were looking for a king that would reestablish a kingdom. But God had sent a king who would reestablish his church. So sometimes when you're expecting God to fit into your idea, you will not find him. So they said, well, they didn't see Jesus. And these two, they didn't see Jesus. But my question for you is, do you see Jesus? Do you see God? Or do you sometimes ask yourself questions like, where is God? Why isn't he doing something about my life? Sometimes our doubts and our questions are because we have written our own story of who God is and what he should do rather than leaning on who he really is. So can I just normalize this a little bit more? Number three, even people who saw Jesus had trouble seeing him. Even people who saw Jesus had trouble seeing him. The same is true of me. The same is true of you. And here's the thing. If we saw the version of God that we designed, we would ultimately and eternally be very let down. But thankfully, God does not change to fit our story of him. He has already established the story of who he is for us. So as Jesus is hearing this, first of all, he replies to them with some words of rebuke. When we have a wrong idea of God, God doesn't just come to us and say, oh, I know, it's hard, there, you know, it'll be okay, maybe I can do some things to make your life a little bit better. God does not conform to our version of him. He strikes us, he pulls us 
into who he really is. So Jesus has some harsh words for them. How foolish you are. How slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Here you go summarizing everything that was prophesied and yet you can't see that it was fulfilled. How foolish, how slow. Then he says this, did not the Messiah have to do these things? Everything you said, didn't he have to do those things? Did he not have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And they're shaking their heads like, what do you mean? So this is my favorite part. Verse 27, beginning with Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Moses wrote all those books. Beginning with Moses and the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all the way through Malachi. Beginning with Moses and the prophets, Jesus showed them. He explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And later on, I encourage you to read the rest of this section this week, but later on, in the aftermath of this encounter, they said, were not our hearts burning within us? We knew the scriptures, but we didn't really know them. We saw Jesus, but we didn't really see them until, until he explained to us through scripture that he was really there. Here's why this is so important for me, because when it comes to how I view the Bible, I don't view it as my faith being in a book. Just like with Jesus, with these poor two disciples who are just so sad and gloomy, he could have cheered them up by saying, hey guys, guess what? I'm a, it's me. I'm alive. We're all good. But rather, he wanted them a deep foundation to really appreciate who he was and what he had done. And to do that, he guided them through the real answers. The solution was not just to have a rabbi who was alive. The solution was to recognize that this rabbi was their savior from sin. And so through the scriptures, through the Bible, Jesus gave them the answers they were looking for. This is why the early church, they made a big deal about reading the Bible on a regular basis. They, they poured over the scriptures together because these were the scriptures that enlighten you to see who God really is and what he's done for you. Jesus gave them the answers. And here's my final thought. God still gives answers today. God still gives answers. Sometimes the, the questions we ask are good questions that deserve good answers. Sometimes the doubts we have are just one symptom of having a, a faulty view of God. But no matter what the case is, God still gives answers. And what I hope in this series is that you can relate with the many people in the Bible who should have seen Jesus, but didn't. The many people who should have known the answers to questions, but they needed some help. It's the same is true of you and me today. We see Jesus, but sometimes we don't. We believe in God, but sometimes we have unbelief. The good news is that God still gives answers today. So is the Bible trustworthy? Is the Bible trustworthy? I believe it is because the one who came back from the dead pointed to it as the authority for our faith. And if there's parts of it I can't understand, it doesn't change the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Because he lives, therefore, my trust 
is in what he pointed to, the Bible. So I hope you're looking forward to the rest of this series. We're going to be looking into some other topics and questions that I think are so important to, to look at because if, if, you don't, if you don't address the questions you have about faith, I've seen it happen where it can lead to a questionable faith. But doubters are not alone. And God still gives answers to this day. So we'll pick it up there next week. Let's close today with a prayer. Dear Father in heaven, throughout the scriptures, we see all sorts of people who are at sometimes full of faith and joy and peace, but at other times they're full of doubt and questions. In fact, just about every hero that we see in the Bible went through an intense season of unbelief and doubt. We even see that in the disciples on Easter morning and in the week that ensued. They were full of questions, full of doubts, and yet through, through providing proof, Jesus dignified the doubters. He, he met them where they were at, and he gave them the answers they needed. And I pray that the same would be true of us today. Each generation in its own ways wrestles with questions and doubts, and yet your word never changes. Your word endures forever and ever. And what a gift that you have preserved for us these words that today fit into our pocket. Let us not take that for granted, but rather give us the desire to every day turn to that word to learn more about you and your plan for us. Bless us as we enter into this series and give us the, the courage to be open with others about the questions and doubts that we need to address. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.